Welcome to the Greenlight Podcast, an audio breakdown of the regulatory barriers to social equity in the cannabis industry by Marijuana Matters. My name is Deanna Benjamin, and I'm your host. We've spent the last few episodes digging into what it means to be an ally in the world and in the cannabis space. In this sixth and final part of our ally series, I had the pleasure of speaking with Leah and Travis Maurer, the dynamic duo responsible for the Weed Blog, a preeminent source of high quality online cannabis content, including medical and recreational use of the plant, as well as current policy updates. Keep listening, y'all, to learn how this team has really approached and made allyship such an essential part of their lives. Um, In this episode, they're going to tell us about how they've chosen to use their privilege, position, and platform to amplify marginalized groups. Get ready, get your pens, take some notes. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Today, I am here with Leah and Travis Maurer, activists and co-owners of The Weed Blog. And we're going to continue this conversation about allyship, about what it means. And I'm, this is cool because they are married, husband and wife, dynamic duo. They've got kids, they got this business and they are really showing up in the cannabis space as advocates for social equity. So I'm just gonna dive right into it and get started. My first question for you both, um, and either one of you can answer first, is can you tell me about the moment when you realized that social equity really mattered to you? When was that? Was it like a light switch or was it like a growing realization over time? You wanna go first? Sure. Um, You know, I think uh, for me, it was a growing realization over time and and, and even before I started using the word equity, um, it's something that I knew was important uh, in the very big picture. If you look at the, um, the racist history of America from you know centuries ago, but um, all the way up from when slavery, slavery supposedly ended all the way through uh, the, the drug war, when you think about equity, um, I think it's once you start to, to realize the real history you start to understand that a people that has been oppressed for that period long of a period of time and continually had um, things yanked from them, opportunities yanked from them, that um, that even outside of cannabis, and I'm glad cannabis has really been uh, um, a, a launch pad for the conversation of equity to and, and, and to, to you know come out. But um, I think I started realizing in my childhood, growing up in Missouri, um, on the, in the s- suburbs of St. Louis that equity had not been uh, uh, met or been a uh, something you know that was provided. So um, I think for as far as cannabis legalization goes, um, you know, Lee and I moved here after um, being busted growing weed in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of a lot of reasons, too many to, to really talk about now, we realized that um, one, Leah never even got in trouble. Um, um, and I was, uh, with 308 plants, given probation. And so uh, equity, even outside of financially speaking, but th- thinking about equity in laws, why was I, as a white male, able to escape 15 years or life? Um, why, didn't they, why didn't they use my gun to 
press, you know, to, to get federal charges on me? Why didn't do all these things? So when, you, when we moved to Oregon and we decided to really focus on changing the laws mm-hmm. um, and, and Oregon and Missouri, I would say that on the, the very first meeting, um, we hired the attorneys to draft Measure 91 and mm-hmm. built the, an organized sort of that group of people to do it. And for me, um, I was the organizer bringing people to the table. I'm not a, I'm not a politico. I wasn't a, a obviously a, a, an attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the one main input that I had in the very beginning was, uh, hey, I think the only thing, the, 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 my biggest wish for legalization is to include a component or a provision that says, hey, the people who have, why we're changing these laws who have been um, disproportionately affected by these racist drug laws should have first opportunity to get into the industry. And so I wanted them to put in a provision for that. And they told me, sorry, Travis, that's unconstitutional, um, which is it's really perverse and wicked when you think about the reason we're changing the laws is because they were actually designed um, to oppress a certain uh, group of people, which are the black and brown communities. So um, I came back and said, all right, well, then I want to see all the money go to education, because in my head, I'm thinking, in the long run, as we continue this work, because legalizing it and being happy about that is not, that's a first step. And, and, and sadly, it hasn't been the, a very big one for a lot of people, or, I mean, for, um, for helping with equity and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, what can we what can we get in there that we can go back and fight for and, and, and have access to those funds, tax, cannabis tax revenue to promote equity programs. So for me personally, um, it's been a lifelong uh, realization based on where I grew up in Missouri. But as far as cannabis uh, goes, I think uh, when we were drafting the laws, really trying to get them to insert something in there that would really truly um, uh, give a huge platform and, and financial uh, um um, access to equitable programs w- was when I really was thinking about it because that's when we we're uh, starting to change the laws. <laughs> oh gosh, there's there was so much, and I'm I want to go back to some of the things you said, but before I would love to hear Leah about your experience and what brought you um, into this advocacy realm where you're really pushing for social equity and making it such an important part of your life. Yeah, thanks. And thanks so much for for having me, for having both of us. And uh, Travis kind of touched on like where my answer is going to come from, because um, I would not say it was an ongoing thing for me. Um, The SWAT raid that we had in 2009 in the middle of Missouri was really a big wake up call for me in a lot of ways and sort of, um, you know, helped me open my white girl privileged eyeballs up a little bit more to like what was going on, you know, around me in the world, because the way that we were treated that day, the repercussions that we Um, had from that just in my own little world felt so difficult and it um, you know as as that process went on for us and I learned about like you know this stuff actually happens every day and it happens every day to people you know that have been devastated by the racist criminalization of cannabis for decades and decades it was just such a, a like I don't want to say it was an unknown to me, but it was just, it was, you know, I was, the way my civil liberties felt like they were invaded and violated that day during the raid and learning about all the social injustices that were, you know, intertwined in the overall drug war, basically, you know, civil asset forfeiture and, you know, all these other things, racial profiling, all these things that I just really wasn't aware of. So it was really within that first like few months there in 2009, when I really started to become aware of like, what social equity was and why there was such a huge gap and things like that. And then just continued to kind of 
educate myself about it a lot as we were kind of in that transition of what are we going to do? Um, but at the same time, you know, being level-headed enough to also realize that like during that SWAT raid, I wasn't arrested. I didn't have my children taken away. I didn't have to deal with child protective services at all. Um, you know, other than dealing with like, you know, the sense the story being sensationalized in the local media and basically, you know, the majority of my friends turning their backs on me once they found out mm -hmm. that we were growing cannabis in our basement, you know, once, you know, that was kind of like a big, a hurtful thing for me just personally, but then, you know, looking at the bigger picture of like, you know, I, I should, you know, and then going through the whole, um, you know, when he did his guilty plea and stuff and going through the whole court process with him and his probation, everything, just the way that we were able to get out of that situation and literally relocate our family in a place that had different laws than where this has all happened and be able to stay there and for him to stay out here. I just knew that like, I couldn't sit still on the topic anymore. Like I did not want what happened to me to happen to anybody else ever again, because it just felt so wrong. And knowing that like, you know, people had been enduring that kind of stuff for generations and generations in their communities and that nothing was being done about it. And that nothing was being done to try to, um, I don't use the word fix, but try to like reinvest or do some good with this newly legalized industry. And one of the things that Travis said that I absolutely agree with is how, um, you know, cannabis legalization has really served as a vehicle and a launch pad for conversations about stuff like this and all these conversations about intersections and things like that, that are so important for us to be talking about as we continue to advocate and to work in this industry, because it's such, um, you know, you know, like he said, the cannabis tax revenue is, is the, the biggest opportunity for us to be able to like actually put money, you know, in these places that have been devastated for, for generations and generations because of the racist criminalization of this plant. Mm. Okay, so like hearing your answers together and what really strikes me about both of your responses, specifically to that raid, is you endured your own type of trauma. Like, you know, <laughs> no matter who you are, no matter the level of difficulty that you face, like a, that's a trauma is a trauma is a trauma. But you took that experience and while processing it yourself then said, okay, but look at how much we're benefiting from this system, like to where, you know, Leah's not, doesn't face any criminal charges at all. Travis is, is let go on probation and doesn't have to serve, you know, a, a slap on the wrist. You get to keep your kids. There's not, and I just can't help but think, I've been thinking lately about Bernard Noble, yeah. the recent, you know, release of his, um, of his brand, the Be Noble Project of Cure Leaf, and just thinking, it was like two like two grams of weed and, and he ended up serving seven years in prison mm, um, well, it's awful yeah mm. it's just so did you guys like have a conversation after this was there a conversation you had as husband and wife because I mean I'm curious too like that is a unique position that you're in your partners and not just in business but in life did you sit down and and like what was when did you both agree or like come to this place where you decided together? Because I think there are a lot of people who might feel like, okay, well, this is my thing. My partner's not necessarily on board. Like, how did that look for you? If you don't mind sharing, I know it might be oh, a little yeah. personal, but yeah, I have a short, short answer. Yeah, yeah, back yeah. on it. Um, I think it, you know, we've been together for so long. We talk about everything. And so it's, you know, if one of us is really interested in something and the other one's not sure we're talking about that, but 
Um, Travis and I, I feel like at the core are both kind of like activists anyway, like we've always pushed for things that we thought were good. And if we thought that something, you know, that, you know, was wrong that had been done, we would try to right that wrong. And um, being like just, you know, ethically, morally, you know, humane people, it was just kind of one of those things where we just like, you know, we just felt, we felt like we, you know, we got off with the slap on our, on the wrist, you know, and, and, and got away. And it was just so unfair to know that like we were people that could happen to but there were so many other people that that wasn't happening for and wasn't going to happen for because you know it was just so obvious by looking at all the numbers you know of how this has gone and so I don't know that it was like one succinct conversation it was more of a like okay for for me and I think Travis was already feeling that when I let him speak for himself but like kind of going back to what I said already about like I just it was not something I felt like I could sit still from. Yeah. You know, I, I couldn't know that that was going to continue to go on in this country that I lived in without trying to do something about it and aligning myself with the right people and organizations that were also trying to do something about it. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's awesome. It's, it's awesome to hear that. And I love hearing that, like, friendship, partnership, support of one another's ideas, and also this shared sense of responsibility yeah. To, your, to your community, which leads me to the next question. I mean, when I hear you guys talk about what you're doing, um, it just seems really clear to me that you are, you know, fully embracing a role, the, the allyship role. So I feel like you have a really good idea of what it means. So that's my question. If you were to define allyship to someone, what, what would you tell them? What does it mean to be an ally in the cannabis space or any other space? And Travis, why don't you um, start with this question? Sure. Um, so an ally is someone who, um, uh, you know, joins together in a cause that's important um, on any level, right? In World War II, we had the allies. Well, here, what we have is there's so much around this, right? Revisionist history. First and foremost, I think it's important for people to understand the real history in our country. I mean, my happy ass as a kid used to dance around as a pilgrim. And let me tell you, if anybody had ever given me the real history about Christopher Columbus and all this other stuff, and as a seven-year-old kid, I would have denied that opportunity. I would have said, no, thank you. I do not want to celebrate somebody like that. So, um, you know, there's a reason that happened because it's really hard to talk about. It's really hard. And and especially um, if you look at the beginning of history where, you know, when the ribbon, it's all been revisions. But if you go back and look, people don't want to talk about that then. And then, you know, as you move forward, um, it's just sort of forgotten until all of a sudden the internet comes about and people are able to start sharing things like really fast and yada yada. So ally to me means first um, acknowledging the truth, acknowledging that there's a, 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 a set of humans mm-hmm. who have undergone um, centuries of horrific oppression mm-hmm. and, um, and endured um, evils that nobody would wish upon anybody. And mm-hmm. And this isn't like a one-off experience, right? This has been ongoing. Um, I think allyship also for people in the drug law reform movement needs to start to move in the direction of realizing that while the drug war is racist, it's not a one-off 
thing that just suddenly happened in 1970. Right. It's the continuation yeah. of the same oppressive policies um, and intentions and agenda from a very white supremacist, racist in beginning. Mm -hmm. And so um, for me, when I think about equity and allyship, it's so important because I'm like, no, these humans have been um, for decades and decades and decades and decades undergoing the same oppressive um, um, the same oppression, the, uh, the same um, racist um, hell. Um, and in order to really fix that, I think you have to acknowledge it and you have to want for your community to be better. I don't know why anybody would ever say, oh, I don't want to rebuild and help pick up my community. We want educated, healthy people. And I think as humans, just like um, in my personal life, when I make a mistake, I have to admit it. Now, right. I think one problem is, is that a lot of people in my community, white people, um, get defensive right away because they're like, wait, I'm not racist. Oh, I'm not. Gonna... Well, okay, I get it. That doesn't mean you have benefited if you look back through history, yeah. through <laughs> what has happened in the past. You don't have to be racist. That's okay. Um you just have to acknowledge the truth about your history and 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 what has happened there. So allyship to me means acknowledging the truth, mm -hmm. wanting to have a better uh, humanity, so that hundreds of years from now, um, as is, we continue healing through this, and we, we pick up those people and give them the opportunities, so that we can all be on the same, which will never maybe be exactly perfect, but so that we can all be on the same playing level. Yeah. Um, same opportunities. And to me, that's what humanity is about. Mm, that's good. Leah, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I would agree because it's, uh, it, I agree that, you know, the goal is to have the, the best humanity possible for everybody. Right. And, um, when I talk about allyship, I, you know, and like Travis said, you can have allies for all kinds of things, you know, right. but speaking specifically to the topic that we're talking about now, I, I bring it, um, back to like, when you think, you know, as a parent, when I think about teaching my kids about bullying or like the way bullying is talked about in schools, you know, like if you see a kid getting beat up on the playground or teased in the lunchroom, whether you know that kid or know anything about the situation, it's your job to go over there and try to stop what's going on because you notice that someone's suffering and you want to try to stop that. So you stand up to the bully, you tell them to stop, whether, you know, whether you see this kid that's getting bullied doing it or not. And that's your job to go be an ally to that child until they feel safe. And, you know, that's what I've taught my kids. That's what I believe most of their educators have taught them. And so I think about allyship in that regard, except for just like compounded by, you know, so, so many, so much, because we're talking about people that have been devastated for generations and generations and generations that have literally been bullied for like their whole lives, their parents' whole lives, their grandparents' whole lives. And so that's like, you know, decades and decades and decades of this bullying that we need to somehow try to like mend and make better because we want people to feel good. We want to have a good humanity for everybody, not just for certain groups of people. And like Travis said, acknowledging that that has not been the case is definitely the first step. And then, you know, real allyship is acknowledging it taking it in and then actually doing something right. about it, you know, and there's varying levels of that, right? You know, some people have money and they can do it with their money. Some people have time and they can do it with their time. Some people have media platforms and they can do it with that, whatever it is, you know, I, and I tell people about this, you know, just with activism in general, it's, you know, no matter how big or small, as long as that's something that you are willing to accept and like push forward with and have those difficult conversations and all with all the intersectionality and stuff like that. And really, you know, discuss that and try to be the best version of yourself, you know? 
Um, so I think, you know, when you compare it to like bullying, I feel like that puts it in a very concrete lens that even like, you know, someone as young as like a five-year-old can understand that like that's wrong and we need to do something about that. But that's not just wrong because it happened yesterday in the lunchroom. It's wrong because it's been happening for decades and decades and decades. So there's way more work to do than to just go stand in between that child and the bully at the time. You know, this is systemic. This is like you know, years and years of rewriting history we need to do and educating people and, you know, giving people, um, you know, the opportunity to like really put themselves into this and be able to try to make change and make things better for everyone. And especially for our children, you know, like parents all the time, I talked about it, like we are, I mean, we're raising three, what are going to be white men in this world, you know? And so for us being able to, you know, have those conversations with them and for them to be able to, you know, understand how to best be able to do this is critical as we move on and just looking at the future of our world and our country yeah i think i would <laughs> yeah i think i would one thing i would like to add about allyship just as it pertains to cannabis and drug law oh, yeah. reform um because I, I i think we've already talked about hey the, the the real picture is much bigger than the drug war right, right. Um, that's just a continuation but as far as cannabis uh reform and drug law reform goes i think a huge component to allyship is supporting black and brown led organizations, right. supporting those voices, because those people know what is best for their communities. Yeah. And so many times in history, well-intentioned people who aren't from those communities have made decisions or done things that end up having an adverse effect or not doing anything. So um, I think so, making sure that you're supporting black and brown led organizations that have been around for a long time, Right. Um, prison reform organizations, drug law reform organizations, those people um, is extremely important. Um, and it's not necessarily to really go start new organizations. I think that there's plenty out there that have been around for a long time. If you have the resources and a platform and the assets mm -hmm. because of uh, the, the luck and, and success you've experienced so far in the cannabis industry, I think that it's, it's more important to take that to existing places. So supporting black and brown organizations, um, led organizations, um, um, and, and this movement is extremely important for efficiency, for effectiveness, and at the end of the day, to, to really be true in your intentions, because I, as much as I'm here doing my best to help, I didn't grow up in that life. Yeah. So I can't, as, I have an idea of maybe what I would want to see, but I don't know, because I'm not there. So I think that's Oh, so many good, so many good nuggets. I hope y'all are taking notes on the Mowers right now. <laughs> some, really good, some really good stuff. Things, uh, a term that they keep repeating is revisionist history. And yeah. I want to just pause on that for a moment because you said something, Travis, earlier that really just stuck with me is, you know, people who say, well, I'm not a racist. And I'm gonna tell you something like I, I'm black and I think that I have racism in me because I live in America. <laughs> if, you, right. if you live in this country, especially if you grew up in this country and went through this country's education system, you have learned racist narratives. That is just, it's, it's just true. Like if you go to the textbooks and look at, like you said, at how the pilgrims, Columbus, I mean, we're going all the way back to the beginning of the, you know, beginning of the Europeans colonizing this land, there's tons of, of bigotry and bias and misogyny. <laughs> That's all the air that we breathe. So when I hear you all talking about step one of allyship is education. 
it, it just, it's so important. We have to, can, all of us, everyone has to continuously pursue a re-education um, because we, you know, what we've been given is, is, is poison and a lot of it is poison. And so this pursuit of truth on your own is really, really key. And I really hope that people are hearing that and, and look into revisionist history and question like, why did I learn these things? Why, why do I view, why, when I think about, you know, medical marijuana, do I think of, of white people? And when I think about uh, the drug war, I think about black people, like what's happening there. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I think that that topic is just so good. Now, the next question, I'm really eager to get to this one and to hear from both of you. So you all, you know, you both created, you own the, the, the weed blog, which is this, you know, eight, is it eight years, seven years? 11. 11. Okay. So let me just add four, you know, three more, th or four, 11 years yeah. in cannabis, publishing in cannabis, you're a media company, you're producing content. So what has that been like? I mean, I can hear, you know, in your speaking and as you're explaining your thought process, that allyship is kind of just something that, that you do constantly. So how do you execute allyship just in your regular professional capacity, running this blog and what you're producing content about cannabis? Is this, mm -hmm. um, yeah, how does that, how does that look? What does that look like for you all? Yeah, thanks. I'm glad. I'm the editorial lead, so I'm going to take this first because I do a lot of the publishing and manage a lot of the social media and stuff like that. So, you know, something that we've always, always tried to do ever since, you know, I basically, you know, came in with the blog full time um, was definitely like uh, make sure because the, the following is very cannabis centric, obviously, like these are people that are mostly interested in cannabis, whether it's cooking with it or consuming it or culture or whatever. And so the first thing, you know, that we've been trying to do for years and years and years is help these people that are like, you know, weed connoisseurs to understand that like cannabis is important. Cannabis legalization is important. Yes. But let's look at all these other substances. Also, let's look at the overall drug war and these other substances and regulation and the topics that come up, you know, with that. And then once we're talking about other substances, let's also make sure that we're hitting on all these other social justice issues, health equity, prison reform, you know, all these other things that are intertwined into cannabis prohibition and into the drug war. And so we've been trying to do that and, you know, pushing content out like that for years on the blog site and, you know, and also, you know, always trying to like lift up, you know, BIPOC-led businesses, BIPOC-led organizations, like he said, that are doing, you know, the good work out there and just making sure people know about them, can follow them, read about their work more. Um, about a year ago, well, it was a little over a year ago now, but after the murder of George Floyd and all of that was happening, you know, we were having these like so many protests here. We live in, we're based in Portland, Oregon, and anybody that was watching the national news at that time knows that there was a lot going on here during that time. And so, um, I had a really good conversation with my friend, Roz McCarthy, who's the founder of M4MM and, you know, said, I talked to her, I was like, she was like, you know, you guys have been putting content out about this stuff for years, da, 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 cause I was talking to her about, I would love, I, I, and I had a few conversations with people at that time. Jesse Horton was another one of them. And I said, what, how can I best use my platform right now with what's going on right now to really push education out for people? And Roz gave me the idea 
to do um, a multi-part series about social justice and the war on drugs. And I did four parts on that that were all these different social justice issues that are, you know, rooted or certainly fostered and have been built on by the war on drugs and the racist, you know, criminalization of cannabis, you know, from cannabis prohibition to prison law reform, you know, health equity, all of those things that are intertwined. And being able to just continually push out education like that, give people resources every time I do, you know, public speaking or anything like that, making sure that I'm referring people, you know, to the correct places to go for information and pushing out information for them. So um, I think that, you know, having a media platform, especially that's like, you know, what I really try to focus on both in like my long-term planning and my goals, you know, all the way down to like the day-to-day that I have with publishing social media shares, things like that, really pushing out, you know, those voices that need to be heard right now and giving other people the platform to share their voices, not mine, to showcase them, to quote them, you know, to push out the work that they're doing, the workshops they're putting out. Um, so that, you know, in my professional life specifically, I would say those are some, you know, some examples. Yeah. Um, I would say just quick, to quickly add one, if you really want to get involved with equity, you can text equity to 42420 <laughs> uh, and join uh, Marijuana Matters and, and the work that they're doing. Um, as, as far as our platforms are concerned, it's really funny. When I talk to people and tell them that we own the weedblog.com and that SMS short code 42420, um, a lot of times the response I get is, oh, you're a genius, um, which feels great. But the truth is, is I actually have a background in growing weed and getting my hands dirty and selling weed my whole life. And um, the honest sort of way that we came across these platforms is because after we moved out here, um, we decided that, and, and for our own different reasons that congealed and came together, but me personally, I was like, there's no way that when I'm 80 if, and I look back and say, oh, I sold weed when I was on probation, I, got, I had a million and a half dollars under the floorboard and didn't do nothing about it while these people sat in prison, um, that I wouldn't be able to live with that yeah. based on my yeah. own experiences, based on growing up being very accepted within the black and brown community, mm -hmm. which is a big part of my childhood and upbringing and being uh, able to witness that firsthand from sort of a, um, uh, on my white suburban couch um, and not getting in trouble for the same thing. So the reason, the way we even came about those platforms is because I scaled up a 6,000 square foot grow with the intentions of while I was on probation, selling that weed and taking the risk and using that money to build these organizations and efforts mm -hmm. in Missouri and Oregon, because I felt like I'm gonna be a soldier now for yeah. these people um, that are all still in prison. I would started catching up with a lot of people because of social media and just the discrepancy between my white group of friends and my black group of friends yeah. who were all friends and got along was drastic. Yeah. Like we got a whole group over here that's in and out of prison. Like it's just a part of life. Yeah. It is in and out of prison. So. As scaling up these organizations and building out the websites and hiring all these people and yada, yada, um, I realized uh, right away how important it was to have a Google presence and also started researching how to integrate an SMS campaign um, that could be very effective. And so that's how we even came across them. As far as that goes, it wouldn't matter to me if I was a teacher, a ballet dancer, an actor, a singer, a whatever. Um, my... Um, experiences in life have, have driven me uh, and passioned me um, to take part in this cause. So, you know, you everybody has a social media platform. Yeah. And these days, it, you don't have to have an official business. 
once your ass is out there on in the in the digital sphere, you're out there. So, uh, you know, to to that point, I think if you have a massive platform, even better. But everybody pretty much has a platform. So I think being educated and understanding how to be an ally um, and use your platform, whether it's small or big, is something that that, that people can do and have a a, a huge effect because it takes us all. It takes yeah. us all. And then just to piggyback on that real quick, like to um, in talking with colleagues and you know other people that we work with specifically in the cannabis industry, and um, trying to help them understand this is uh, you know people that that think they get it but maybe they they don't kind of you know trying to help them to um, also understand that they literally have like a civic duty and a moral responsibility to be thinking about social equity issues. Like if you're work, I don't care if you're a trimmer, if you're the CEO of a cannabis company or somewhere in between, you are now an ambassador for this industry that's still federally illegal. And it is on you to be educated about these issues because because of what you're doing to make money every day. Like you need, to, you need to at least be aware of these statistics and what's going on. And then you need to do something about it or encourage your company to do something about it in some way. Mm-hmm. So that's another way, you know, besides just like the publishing, which goes, you know, generally to a more consumer and, you know, audience, making sure that people that I associate with in the industry are also on the same page as I am. And if they're not, try to get them on the same page as I am, you know? So I feel like that's equally as important as we continue to trudge along in, in this industry. Can I make one more short comment? Okay. So, yeah. So, um, so something that was really intriguing that you said, um, uh, you know, five or 10 minutes ago was when you think of medical marijuana, you think of white. And when you think about um, uh, uh, the, the drug, drug war, war, you think yeah. of black yeah. and brown people. Yeah. That couldn't be closer to the truth. Yeah. The, and, 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 and as we talk about revisionist history, which, um, I think with the advent of the technological revolution and, and the uh, internet and everything has um, exponentiated the process of uncovering these truths. Right. Um, I hope it does the same thing for um, cannabis law reform history, mm-hmm. because the fact of the matter is we're a quarter century in to changing weed laws right. starting in 1996, yeah. which was a very compassionate act. Um, um, and, and, it, it was medical marijuana to and the scope of helping people with AIDS to deal with the AIDS epidemic, which we won't even go into that and how that right. with black and brown people. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but Dennis Perone, uh, a gay man who came out and said, hey, we need this. Da, da, da. Very awesome. Yeah. From that day forward, it was co-opted. Mm-hmm. And the, there was not a thought about uh, prison reform, about racist drug laws. It was then all about the money. It was all about establishing medical marijuana laws that had high barriers of enter- entry, protectionist policies to protect the humans who had the privilege to go spend their money changing laws and not get in trouble, right. get into the industry. And a lot of organizations, a lot of organizations <laughs> um, had that has been their effort. And while I think it's awesome that people really are coming out and we know how that works, look, it's all good. Yeah, it's cool. It should be cool to talk about equity. It should be cool to talk about our acknowledging our revisionist history and doing something for those communities that have been um, slaughtered at times. Mm -hmm. Um, That is cool. But what's not cool is to 
to look back and be like, well, we just wasted a quarter of a century passing laws that had no effect on helping those communities. Um, And and that's why, again, I go back to say, hey, if you want to support, if you want to be an ally, support black and brown led organizations, because they certainly weren't highlighted. Their platforms were not lifted. Nobody was giving them a megaphone for their voices, which should have been from the outset the entire reason that we ever changed law, drug laws and cannabis laws. Um, medical marijuana, don't get me wrong, is, is, is extremely important um, and, and all the verticals. But first and foremost, the argument should have been, hey, our brothers and sisters in the black and brown community have been uh, subjected to these racist laws. And if you go back and look at the numbers and all this stuff, th- these are racist laws that affected them. I know they affect a lot of people now. But the fact is, is they're racist and they have affected those people. So I, I, I wanted to make that comment because I think it's important for people to understand, especially in choosing to support organizations, support black and brown led organizations. Those are the people who are affected. Those are the people who know what they need. Absolutely. It's, uh, I feel like we could just keep going, honestly, because uh, you guys are hitting on so many really relevant topics. And my hope is that, you know, people you who are listening right now that, you know, you just take some of these topics and start doing your research and into understanding, look up, look up the, the beginning of cannabis prohibition in this country and why that happened and who it was specifically targeted against and the types of words that Harry Anslinger said. Yeah, you know the word, (laughs) we know the word. Right. If you think that Donald Trump was offensive, just look at the history of cannabis policy in the United States. It's it, This is not hidden. This is not a conspiracy. This is stuff that's documented, public, easily accessible. Um, question, why is it okay for a business in a state that's legalized weed to make, you know, millions of dollars and for somebody who's selling, you know, weed out of their house to go to prison for, you know, a decade or more, like, why, what is that? You know, why is it okay to break the federal law every single day? And it's, but it's not okay. Just these questions that are coming up, these are really important. Um, Travis and Leah, thank you. <laughs> like, I mean, Michael, thank you so much. This was really educational. I think it's gonna be really helpful. Um, I hope people listening really heard, just really heard their message and in their actions and their choice to that question, Leah, that you asked of Roz, what can I do right now, today? That's a question all of us can ask. And Travis, like you said, it doesn't matter what our platform is, what our job is, because we all have an audience, whoever we are. Um, So I think if we combine that, like, just ask yourself with the audience I have today and the tools I have in my hand today, what can I do to make society better? And and that's the beginning of our allyship journey right there. Um, So thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank Thank you so much for having us. That's it for today's episode of the Greenlight Podcast. If you support what we're doing, subscribe to our podcast and leave us a five-star review. That'll help others find us and learn more about social equity in the cannabis industry. You can find out more about Marijuana Matters by checking out our website, marijuanamatters.org. 
And you can follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at Marijuana Matters DC. Thanks for joining us. Talk soon.